This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to Get Sharp, a podcast focused on actionable, medium-term macro insights from industry leaders. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm VP of Key Accounts at McKenzie Investments, and I'm here with my co-host, Dustin Reed, who is our Chief Fixed Income Strategist at McKenzie Investments. Dustin, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, it's great to be back. I'm looking forward to our second episode, and uh, who do we have in store today? So today we have Daniel Sternoff, who I've known for many, many years. Daniel is a head of macro energy strategy at Energy Aspects. Daniel and I worked together uh, for many years at Medley Global Advisors, and uh, Daniel has a long history looking at uh, oil markets and China, uh, as well as uh, the Federal Reserve in particular, as well as many, many uh, other things. And, uh, you know, I think that the oil story and the China demand story as it, as it relates to oil and how it all kind of comes back to inflation and the Fed and markets and the curve and uh, just general risk sentiment, uh, high beta uh, securities. I think the oil story is uh, important and undervalued in that in that narrative. And I think it's going to be a thematic topic for later this year and into 24. And I could think of no one better than Daniel to kind of take us through some of the interesting and more important risks and dynamics around that market. So that's why uh, Daniel's joining us today. That's great. And Daniel, welcome to the podcast. It sounds like uh, we're quite fortunate to have you. Oil, China, Fed, all of that seems like you'd probably be in high demand. So thanks so much for spending the time with us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, why don't we get started? Daniel, maybe give us a little bit about your background. Absolutely. So I currently am leading the macroenergy uh, practice with Energy Aspects, uh, which is a consultancy servicing investors, physical players uh, in the oil industry, refiners, traders, shippers, and a lot of financial investors. Uh, what I am leading, this is the macro energy practice. So this is looking at all of the macro factors that are affecting the energy complex. So this is global macroeconomics and geopolitics and positioning and cross-asset uh, developments as they are uh, impacting oil futures, as well as uh, the demand side for oil. Uh, I also do a lot of work with macro clients who are trading rates and fixed income and equities, helping them understand the oil world and the way that oil impacts right. the macro. So it's really a practice that is bringing oil to macro accounts and macro to oil accounts. And uh, before uh, taking this role, I worked with Dustin at Medley Global Advisors uh, for quite some time. I was with Medley for almost 20 years, and during that period, uh, covered quite a lot of things. I, I ran the emerging markets and energy practices, hmm. which involved uh, a deep dive into China, activity, policy, property, FX, commodities, demand. Um, Looked at the energy complex for a long time, supply, demand, OPEC, geopolitics, cross-asset drivers. Uh, and I've also led research for the firm, which has required a lot of focus on the U.S. and macroeconomic policy. So that is monetary policy, fiscal, Fed, Congress, national security. So over my almost 25 years now in this space, I've had the opportunity to uh, to cover a lot of the the key themes that are impacting global markets, and I'm very specialized in, in in the commodity space currently. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a it's a huge breadth of knowledge, and uh, I've always enjoyed uh, our chats our chats working together, and then obviously ex post that kind of working um, on the asset management side. So it's great to have you. Maybe we could jump into it, and frankly, marrying uh, a couple of a couple of key things that you obviously look at. I think a lot has been made about the Chinese oil demand function uh, and as, as a reason for, at least earlier this year, underperforming uh, oil markets, although obviously oil has come back in the last month or two. How do you see the Chinese oil demand uh, situation playing out for global balances and for spot uh, for the rest of the year and into early 24? It's a great question, Dustin. I think it's worth starting off by 
uh, stating that Chinese oil demand has actually been really robust this year. And it's been one of the biggest uh, differences between reality and the narrative in the markets has been what is actually happening with physical oil demand for crude and oil products. Obviously, sentiment towards China has been very weak and Chinese equities and risk assets that are linked to the China story uh, have struggled. And that has included uh, oil in the commodities complex. And part of that had to do with expectations for just this incredibly strong reopening have been uh, disappointed. And of course, the weakness in China has been concentrated in uh, manufacturing and a slowdown in infrastructure with a tapering of the huge infrastructure growth from last year. But I think that if we actually take a look at the actual oil demand story, it's been very strong. Um, when we look on a year-to-date basis, crude oil imports on volumetric terms are up about 12% year over year. Uh, refinery runs are up about 1.3 million barrels per day, uh, which is very strong. And demand for products, obviously, there's many data issues with China, including lack of transparency into inventories. But we have been seeing gasoline inventories have actually been falling all year long. And uh, diesel inventories have not been building. And there have been crude oil stock builds, about 50 million barrels per day year to date. That works out to about 220,000 barrels per day uh, overall. That's not a huge number for a country that is expanding its refinery capacity and taking advantage of some weakness in global oil prices to build up inventories. So to build 220,000 barrels per day of crude inventories when your runs, refinery runs are up 1.3 million barrels per day in a 16 million barrel per day market, this is not a really meaningful inventory build. So I think a lot of the discussion of China weakness is really not borne out in the actual data. And when you look at this by product or by economic sector, gasoline demand is up about 10% year over year. In China, this is mobility has returned, consumption and services have been points of strength in the economy, and demand for jet fuel and aviation are up over 50% year over year. We're now back up to about 80% of pre-pandemic levels. No question there is weakness in uh, distillates, which reflects weakness in residential construction and in manufacturing and logistics, which obviously global OECD PMIs have been uh, contracting all year. But overall, Chinese demand is not weak. Uh, you know, maybe there's a disappointment in the market that you need to see a little bit of more fiscal stimulus in order to get a five or five and a half GDP growth number against a weak base. Uh, but just looking at the pure volumes of Chinese uh, product consumption and crude imports, it's been solid. It's pretty interesting because I think the narrative out there has been not the case. So the market seems to be focusing on kind of a, a different narrative. Why do you think the market is, or at least people I've been speaking to, might be focusing on a different narrative? And what do you think? What do you think is the missing link there? So, I mean, part of the narrative is relative to expectations. You know, okay. this was going to be the year of the big China reopening. Obviously, the base of activity last year was very weak. So, you know, I think the feeling was to hit a, if the GDP target is, call it, around 5.5%, that especially with the sudden reopening, you would really see, it would be very easy to exceed that, not difficult to see full-year GDP in the sixes and something really robust feeding through. Uh, and relative to that, it has been disappointing. And that's definitely the case when it comes to property markets. You had a pickup in real estate sales early in the year, and then it's just kind of rolled over and has been a double dip. And residential right. construction has continued to be a real weak point, looking at uh, sales, looking at new starts. Uh, some of that is just the huge overhang from a property bubble that inflated all the way through the late 20 teens, which led to six years of efforts to try to deleverage that sector, uh, confidence questions, pricing. So I think weakness 
uh, and disappointment in property has fed into that narrative. We've also been seeing, you know, last year saw a really huge uh, fiscal stimulus in infrastructure with really enormous local infrastructure bond issuance to kind of let infrastructure investment hold the economy up during all of the rolling COVID lockdowns when they tried and ultimately failed to maintain uh, zero COVID. And after that huge infrastructure stimulus, we've seen a fiscal tapering. And so we have seen a slowdown in infrastructure investment in the context of weakness in property. And I think relative to expectations, uh, that has caused uh, you know this disappointing sentiment and and um, a you know this caution from consumers and questions around the Chinese growth model and questions surrounding financial uh, linkages from property developers that are having struggles with their payments and kind of the same type of structural macro worries you've heard from China in in, in recent years I think they have been amplified by a below expectations recovery. All of which is true. All of which you've seen Chinese equities after rallying at the start of the year have just been sideways to down. Uh, there's a whole lot of reasons why sentiment towards China has been weak. Geopolitics, US-China tensions, mm -hmm. uh, Taiwan, you know, all of those factoring in the mix and the policies of the Chinese government that have reduced uh, investor confidence uh, as, as well. I think all of that has fed the narrative uh, that has affected investment into China broadly, which you see in a range of markets. But just looking at the specific uh, oil demand factors about real mobility in trans personal mobility, transportation, gasoline, uh, jet fuel, it's been a very solid and notable recovery. Uh, so that's where I think the mismatch is between sentiment and reality. That's great. That's actually really uh, helpful to put it kind of into light. Maybe we can switch gears slightly and talk maybe bigger picture uh, global oil demand story. So where do you see the other big oil demand stories to watch for for the rest of the year and into early 24? And how do you see that? How do you see that developing ex-China? Absolutely. So on the demand side, I think one point worth flagging, um, the IEA has just put out its latest monthly, and they have global oil demand just exceeded 103 million barrels per day, which is the highest in history. So just to have a little bit of context, we are currently seeing global demand for, uh, for, for liquids is at record levels. Uh, we've seen pretty robust growth on a global basis this year. Obviously, that is against a weak base. Um, but, you know, we're still tracking demand growth of, you know, a million six, a million seven or so. Uh, obviously, base effects have a big part of that, but it's been there. Um, it's notable, notable about that are a couple of things. Um, one, we're seeing that kind of strength, even with the weakness that we've seen across all OECD uh, manufacturing and trade. So, you know, after the huge pandemic demand for goods, we're seeing the bullwhip effect on the other side, which is why basically most OECD PMIs have been sub 50 for, you know, basically all year, weakness in global trade and volumes. And we haven't, maybe we're seeing the beginnings of signs that uh, of some bottoming in goods uh, trade, at least out of the US in particular. Um, but even with that source of weakness in, uh, which is really affecting uh, the distillates complex, we still have been seeing some pretty reasonable global demand growth. Um, part of that has been the U.S. As you well know, I think consensus expectation coming into this year was for a mild recession beginning, I'd say expectations at the end of last year, beginning of this year, was that recession was the most forecast recession in history. It hasn't arrived. Uh, We've not had the Q2, Q3 recession. The mm -hmm. Atlanta Fed GDP now is tracking at 4.1% uh, <laughs> here in early August after an above trend Q2. And so the U.S. has been uh, performing to the upside. That also is manifested in uh, U.S. oil demand, has been fractionally higher than expected, offsetting some weakness coming out of Europe. And we have seen really robust demand growth. Uh, out of India in particular and other parts of ASEAN have been real points of strength. And I would also add in, in, in the Middle East. So on a global basis, it's relatively 
healthy despite de facto a manufacturing recession across most of the industrialized world. Um, I, I am that that's just for some context about where we are. Uh, it's an interesting question to ask what demand could look like if we see a bottoming in the manufacturing cycle, mm-hmm. um, which we're not really seeing. And you look at the, you know, the German industrial production, uh, European PMIs, they're making new cycle lows and it looks really poor. We have seen some bouncing in PMIs and new orders still contracting, but off their worst levels in uh, in the U.S., in Japan, in South Korea, uh, even in China. Uh, so less bad. And when you look at things like freight rates, Shanghai into Los Angeles or Long Beach, they're actually starting to tick up a little bit. And listening to some of the Q2 earnings in the U.S., uh, like the corrugated box makers who are you know, making boxes for companies that are shipping goods, they are reporting that inventories among their customers uh, seem to have stabilized and are, have seen a little bit of a rise in July. I mean, I'm reaching deep into the well to look for some green shoots after what's been, uh, you know, a real period of weakness. Uh, but even the German capital goods orders were up um, uh, last month. So maybe the very beginnings of a bottoming or a stabilization in uh, in in goods demand, dependent heavily on whether the U.S. consumer is going to hold up or fall apart. Um, you know, if we were to see some pickup, that could actually be uh, meaningful, given that you know effectively we've seen zero distillates demand growth on a global basis uh, year to date, year on year. Um, not don't want to lean too heavily to say that will happen, but maybe that's something just to to look for. Uh, obviously, the downside demand risks are what they've been all year. Is are, is the U.S. heading into a recession? Yes or no? Um, I, as you well know, data's turned a little bit more mixed. Uh, it's generally been strong. CapEx has been surprisingly strong given the tightening. Uh, from the Fed and where rates are, a lot of that is industrial policy, the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, just the kind of U.S. investment in the manufacturing is very strong, uh, which is which has been uh, a supportive factor. Labor markets still adding a couple hundred thousand jobs almost in the U.S. the last couple of months. But obviously, if that were to roll over, and you were to move somewhere closer towards the Fed's unemployment forecast by the end of the year, uh, that would have an effect on gasoline demand, and that obviously is, is, is a downside risk. I don't think it's a big one in volumetric terms, but you know clearly that's a that, that's a downside uh, demand risk if we're thinking through the end of the year. It's great context, uh, Daniel. You've sort of laid out a uh, bull bear case, uh, depending on where we go. I'm curious on the supply side um, and uh, what you're looking at on the supply side. How do you see that playing out over the second half? And then maybe walk through the risks uh, either of the supply being able to meet uh, demand if we are indeed seeing those green shoots on manufacturing uh, come back yep. or what the risks are if we see the consumer um, lighten up a little bit. Absolutely. It's a, it's an excellent question. I think supply is driving a lot. And let me start first with what's going on with the supply of refined products and what's going on at the refinery level, because this is really, if anything, has been the most surprising factor over the last couple of months. It has been the strength in forward margins and cracks. You know, we're basically looking at uh, refinery margins not just spot margins, but looking forward, they're well above five-year averages. And that has seen strength um, looking at product spreads, looking at cracks, even in distillates, which have had basically zero growth. And of course, gasoline margins have been super strong. Um, Sustainable oil rallies are ones that are products-led. It's one thing if oil or crude is supported because OPEC or the Saudis are restraining supply. But a sustainable rally is one where it's really demand-led. And when we look at the strength that we're seeing across margins, cracks, and product spreads, it's really strong. I mean, last year we had record uh, cracks because we were hitting bottlenecks on refinery capacity after just an absent 
costs of investment, uh, mostly in the Atlantic basin, U.S. and Europe over a long period of time. This year was supposed to be a year in which we saw really chunky refinery additions, a lot of that in the Middle East and Asia. And mostly what we have been seeing is delays that are preventing those startups of those refineries. And we're seeing record temperatures all over the place, which you've seen through wildfires in Greece and Italy. Refineries struggle in this kind of heat and the kinds of unplanned outages that we have been seeing uh, on a global basis are also... uh, really large. So we've actually seen constraints on the supply of products that are supporting margins. And we have high frequency global oil product inventories are basically near record lows for this time of the year. So that to me means that refiners can now lock in forward margins and they're going to run. So even if global demand actually weakens, you kind of have the incentive among refiners given the, the reality of products, markets, and, and inventories to run crude. Now, it is true that the unplanned outages of crude mean they're not running as much crude as we thought they might have now, and that has meant that crude inventory draws uh, are not as big as we thought they would be right now, but they are big. I mean, we, we have about a million and a half, uh, roughly, uh, uh, crude inventory draw over Q3 and q Four. Um, so on the product supply side, we think the dynamics of refining are going to keep uh, product markets tight in ways that send signals for refiners to be running crude all the way through the end of the year. Uh, the other big supply factor, Matt, really is all about Saudi Arabia, mm. um, which has been implementing a unilateral a rare unilateral cut of a million barrels per day that they began in the summer. They said it would be for one month. They've now extended it twice. Uh, this is a, a break from the pattern for the kingdom, which previously wants partners to shoulder the burden of managing the markets. It would want the right. Russians. It wants the Emiratis. It wants others in OPEC to join in in cuts, which has happened. And you know, we've seen. Um, we have seen restraint on production across the OPEC plus group extended out through the end of 2024, but the Saudis have added what they call a lollipop of their own million barrel per day uh, reduction, which we're starting to see uh, showing up in the markets now. Saudi crude exports are down by about 600,000 barrels per day. Some have said "Hmm, that shows they're not really cutting as much as they said that's kind of a false narrative in the market because Saudi refinery runs are down and their own domestic crude oil burn for power generation is up uh, quite a bit. Okay. It has been extremely hot. So in, in total, we can see it's not all come out of exports, but when they're lowering their runs, that's less products that they're exporting and the net balance is still they're implementing this cut. So the big question is, when will Saudi stop being so generous and roll back these cuts? Because clearly they don't, they didn't plan on producing 9 million barrels per day uh, and being stuck there when everybody else in OPEC is not implementing cuts of that same, same extent. So I, I think this is the real uh, question that people in the market are asking is, what's the price level when they start to roll it back or when does their patience end? Uh, or if we're getting into the 90s on Brent, then do they start to roll it back? And and everything that we have been picking up uh, is that they are not in a rush to unwind these cuts. Uh, they've extended them for another month. We think that these this full million barrel per day unilateral cut will extend uh, until October. They'll review things on a month-by-month basis. They're not going to bring that all back at once. Hmm. Even if they begin to bring some production back, they're going to taper it gradually. So we are we are not assuming a pickup in Saudi supply uh, until November and, and then uh, only gradually. And if anything, the balance of risk is that they will just choose to extend that uh, till the end of the year before they begin to taper their cuts. I mean, I think they're trying to make sure that global crude inventories draw, the market is healthily backwardated, 
uh, you know, finally getting a little bit of price lift this year in what has been a frustrating year for them to have done successive rounds of output cuts and prices not really responding, I, you know, they're not quick to undo their work and, uh, uh, and, 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 and maybe stop the current rally in oil prices in its tracks. Right. I don't follow oil markets clearly as closely as you, Daniel, so this might be a bit of a naive question. But I do recall the overall narrative uh, maybe going back a couple of years is uh, if uh, if prices were there in OPEC or Saudis or were trying to constrain supply, uh, American frackers or other uh, um, people could come online and fill that uh, supply. Is that dynamic still exist in the market or you haven't mentioned it at all? Uh, why is that? Yeah, I mean, uh, that dynamic doesn't exist the way that it did during the huge volumetric growth uh, out of the U.S. shale patch. And, um, you know, U.S. companies, what we discovered, there were periods when the U.S. could add 2 million barrels per day worth of production and the companies were not making any money and their share prices were <laughs> falling. And so you have basically seen, you know, capital was flowing into the sector through private equity now companies are uh, incented to live within their cash flow and not uh, overdo it. And you've seen rising costs uh, in the U.S. cost of labor, cost of materials. I mean, in inflation uh, in wages and in materials and in sand is uh, is alive and well. And so you actually have been seeing a lot of restraint being shown on the part uh, of an industry that has worked through the inventory of the highest quality and easiest acreage. And uh, you just have big underlying decline rates in shale. Hmm. You, you know, it, 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 it just declines very fast uh, over the first uh, one, one to two years. And so just to keep production flat, you need to see lots of big increases in production. So we're just in a different structural reality. The U.S. is still growing and uh, and, and is uh, if anything, has been marginally surprising a little bit to the upside on supply relative to our expectations due to efficiency gains and, and the like. Um, but it's not a, I wouldn't put it as a macro factor that we're not, we're just not going back to those same kinds of growth rates uh, on, on the supply side. Oh, that's great. The, the fracking story is obviously something that's been, uh, a driver and then not a huge driver uh, over the last few years. It's always always good to have a uh, good perspective on that, your perspective on that. Can I switch back to Middle East a little bit? Um, one of your colleagues had a really interesting uh, piece a couple of weeks ago around uh, Saudi Arabia fiscal and the likely, what I would assume to be very, very large spending with that fiscal outlook and the budget balances over the next two or three years. Uh, I was curious to get kind of your take on that, what you think it means for what, I mean, obviously Saudi is probably the most important country in terms of oil, but what, what Saudi might be thinking in terms of what I would call longish term, as least, at least as I would look at long term, next two or three years of oil prices, if it's expected to have that kind of fiscal balance, uh, if I'm associating the right things. And then maybe as a secondary uh, part to that question, anything else geopolitically kind of beyond Saudi OPEC or even within OPEC. You know, the Iran story is always interesting uh, around uh, geopolitics that you think could impact oil prices, whether that's the next six months or even beyond. Yeah, absolutely. Great questions. I, I think Saudi, I mean, to, to start with, uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has this incredibly ambitious Vision 2030, which is all about diversifying the Saudi economy away from over-reliance on hydrocarbon uh, revenues. Um, this is building out the non-oil sector. This is building out tourism. This is building out services. This also includes building out lots of physical infrastructure mm -hmm. in cities. And it's a very uh, expensive uh, capital spending plans right. in an economy where they also have raised wages and salaries. And that, that kind of spending is incredibly inflexible um, because once you're you know, once you're increasing salaries in the public sector, you can't uh, lower them. So uh, historically, when you've had periods of uh, underperformance in oil revenues, either because prices have been weak or like now, Saudi did not plan on cutting production down to 9 million barrels per day, and oil prices year to date have been lower than what they had been expecting. Uh, 
historically, the way they might adjust if they don't want to draw down FX reserves or increase borrowing too much is they would cut back on capital spending. But I think the uh, the scale of what MBS is planning reduces their flexibility to do that, and that is just not in the cards. So that spending is continuing. Uh, it, it means, obviously, there's a high oil price need uh, in Saudi, um, and they have to find the right balance between what they're doing on the supply side with crude, uh, a, but they also don't have the flexibility to do what they did in the last decade when you started to have tensions about Russian supply when they just decided to flood the market to drive down prices in order to force cooperation mm, right. across OPEC. They just don't have flexibility to do anything like that uh, at all. So they have they have a higher price need and are going to uh, are going to do what they need to do in order to continue to manage markets to uh, to hold that up. We think Saudi's in a pretty good place. Uh, actually, they they have diversified uh, sources of tax revenue due to um, due to tax reform and strong growth in not in the non oil economy. That's actually making them a little bit less completely reliant on hydrocarbon revenues to fund what they're funding, and they've not basically not needed to draw down FX reserves for some years now. Uh, and and they have space to grow borrowing. Their fiscal deficit this year is at two and a half percent to GDP. They thought it would be in surplus. Uh, it's not, but that's not uh, an unmanageable uh, number uh, yeah. for them to meet. Um, I think to your question about what are some risks going forward, I think there's a couple. What are real risks, and what are what the market might perceive to be risks? Okay. Um, obviously. The question of what they do with their unilateral cuts and how they manage OPEC is 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 is, is an evergreen issue mm -hmm. in the markets. Uh, we're also seeing, I'd say, the most interesting thing happening geopolitically in the Middle East is that the Biden administration is very seriously uh, pushing, with great interest, from Saudi Arabia and from Israel to try to push for a full Saudi-Israel normalization accord in a political window that might exist. Um, before the U.S. presidential election season really kicks off. Hmm. So if this is going to happen, it's got to happen probably by March or April of next year. And there are very high-level conversations that have been going on between the White House, uh, Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor, and uh, Mohammed bin Salman personally. Um, and I think that the Biden administration has determined that MBS – believes it is in the kingdom's strategic interest to try to pursue this uh, now. Uh, the main thing they want out of this is not just direct flights between Riyadh and Tel Aviv. What they want are American security guarantees that are NATO-like, uh, advanced American weaponry, and American support for a domestic uranium enrichment uh, program in order to build uh, a nuclear industry, both for power and, of course, the fear in non-proliferation circles is, well, if the Iranians have a fuel cycle, then the Saudis need it. And, you know, maybe the Saudis aren't as interested in the same kind of curbs that, say, the UAE agreed to on its enrichment. So the Saudis are negotiating with the Americans on this set of issues. Uh, and they're kind of pushing against an open door. Um, uh, because the U.S. sees an opportunity at a time they are concerned about Saudi and some of the Gulf states and the way that they have been uh, neutral in terms of great power politics or drift towards China or the growth of Chinese naval power. This is kind of a way to take traditional American allies, get them to cooperate a lot more in strategic terms, in missile defense, and also to kind of cement uh, uh, an American defense position in a traditional American role as guarantor of oil shipping lanes. So this, this negotiations around this are happening now. There's a lot that needs to happen if this comes together. But the question that's going to come up inevitably in the oil markets is if the Americans are going to give security commitments to Mohammed bin Salman, who the Biden administration and many Democrats were 
uh, we're calling a murderer over the killing of Jamal Khashoggi a number of years ago, and the first American defense commitment to an authoritarian country since the Korean military in the 1950s. In order to do that, what do the Americans get back? And so the oil markets are going to assume Biden needs to keep oil prices low in, in a re-election year, and he'll demand some kind of a quid pro quo. Uh, I think Saudi Saudi role uh, in maintaining strategic autonomy over oil markets is non-negotiable, and there will not be any oil quid pro quo for American defense commitments. Uh, that said, if this deal comes together, which is something the Israelis really want and would also include enhanced U.S. defense commitments to Israel, uh, we're talking something that will require treaty-level approval in the U.S. Senate. I, it's a political reality that if you're going into an American election year and the Senate is being asked to approve a defense treaty by a two-thirds margin with Saudi Arabia, uh, it will not be conducive to getting that through Congress if oil is at 100 bucks and gasoline is going crazy. Mm -hmm. so I think we're going to hear a lot starting to develop around this kind of U.S.-Saudi, you know, <laughs> restraint on oil in this big geopolitical negotiation. Uh, I, I do think that it's the kind of thing, if it advances, and there's a lot of reasons to be cautious around this, not least the Saudi fuel cycle, nuclear fuel cycle demands and Israeli politics are a problem because you would need some kind of a Palestinian component in this deal. And Netanyahu's coalition just doesn't allow that right now, unless he abandons the far right, ends these judicial reform protests, joins with the opposition and signs this historic peace deal with Saudi Arabia. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of ifs, uh, mm -hmm. but, but n n nonetheless, I clearly it would behoove the Saudis to not over tighten oil markets if they're trying to get these huge uh, uh, defense commitments and, and nuclear concessions from the Americans in an election year. Fascinating. Um, I have a thousand follow-up questions, but I'll, I'll restrain myself uh, maybe to, to just one, which maybe will get us uh, some more commentary on, on everything that you've went through. Uh, and it's a very simple one. Where's oil going to be? What price is oil going to be in six to 12 months? Uh, where do you uh, see this going? We think oil, I mean, in the near term, see the green, all things lining up for oil to move uh, into the 90s um, okay. over this period, Q3, Q Four. Um, I mean, part of that is positioning. This rally, so crude oil prices are up 20% uh, uh, since uh, you know beginning of July. Um, very meaningful rally. There's not been widespread participation among the usual discretionary speculative funds that specialize in oil. They've been very frustrating years. Rallies have been cut short um, a, and, 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 and so forth. We see the market has been underpositioned for this rally. The speculators are still net short Brent and WTI on a combined basis. Um, some of that is because their crude oil futures shorts are the hedge on the other side of long oil products or long options plays. But nonetheless, right. when you look on a net basis, the market is still net short. And because one thing that we've seen as Saudi has cut unilaterally and inventories are drawing is the backwardation at the front of the crude curve has become meaningful. So this is the spread between uh, the front two contracts. We now have about 60 cents of backwardation at the front of the Brent and the WTI curve. What that means is that because you can just, if you are, uh, if you are investing in futures, you can play the role uh, uh, each month as those contracts expire, you now have a roll yield annualized of about 10%, which is double what a risk-free three-month T-bill is offering. All year, that has been negative. So you actually now have financial uh, conditions lining up. As long as inventories are drawing and the backwardation is increasing, it's the kind of reality that can draw more flows into uh, the space. And because 
as I was speaking to earlier, we see oil products market looking looking so uh, tight and forward margins looking strong. Everything kind of fundamentally and this financial structure is lining up for flows to keep uh, moving in. Now, obviously, the global, the global U.S. soft landing narrative has really helped oil rally because a lot of the reasons why oil has struggled this year, it's just been caught in the cross-asset chop when you've seen bond volatility as high as it's been, when you've seen, you know, as, as I'm sure you're very well uh, aware of, you know, the market was expecting a Fed pivot year and instead we got a stronger economy and rates moved up to their highs and then we had Silicon Valley Bank and we had the big reversal and then now we've seen rates uh, moving back up again uh, and the market debating hard landing, soft landing, no landing. We've kind of been in this window as hard landing expectations have been uh, unwound, which you know are arguably is why equity valuations are where they are and why the bond market pushed out expectations of Fed cuts from H223. They're now pushed into 24. Uh, that has also been helping uh, the, the commodities space and oil to have a little bit more confidence in, in the growth outlook to try to rally. Now, clearly there's fragilities around that. Are we just in, are we currently in no landing or soft landing and it's just a way station to hard landing because yields at the long end are going to rise or because the Fed isn't fully done or because the lags from credit tightening are finally going to be cumulative, et cetera. But I think for the moment, it's hard to see a big further increase in short yields at the front. Uh, even if the, you know, the Fed, maybe they have one more in the tank, maybe not. And then they pause, um, Maybe there's room for the market to price out cuts in 24, but we need many months of strong growth and inflation data. I think before that happens, the long end could go higher on supply, but you know maybe at least through Jackson Hole or the Fed meeting in September, we're kind of we have higher but not breaking out to a new range in yields. Maybe equities correct a little bit, but do we have you know I mean if we had a a 10 year yield going to four and a half percent and equities correcting, you know, 10 to 15 percent, then I think oil struggles in in the cross-asset volatility there. But I, as long as we're kind of seeing this data of moderating U.S. growth and inflation is a little better but not re-accelerating and we keep the soft landing hopes alive, you know, we might, we might backfill in equities a little bit, but it's more or less a decent story, which keeps the macro lights green, I think, for oil. So uh, it was a very long-winded way of saying, I think in the near term, the fundamentals, the positioning, and the macro story are not dislocated for oil to continue to move higher as long as we get the inventory draws that we're seeing. To, to the six to 12 months, that's really, that's a really a, all about demand um, and whether we will get recession or not. So do we get a little bit of China fiscal now, front-loaded infrastructure? Are they stealing from 24 in order to cushion the back half of 23? And then what will the Chinese policy decisions be to get expectations into China 2024 growth? U.S. straightforward, is, is it true, genuine soft landing? Is this 94, 95? And we're great. Or are we heading into uh, to a uh, to to that recession? It just was two to four quarters later than consensus had been projecting. So I mean, th those are the big questions that will determine whether um, uh, what what the outlook for oil is next year. I, I would say our own forecasts are for a fairly modest global oil demand growth number in 2024. So we're forecasting about a million barrels per day of growth which is uh, a deceleration from this year. And that is assuming uh, that we basically have uh, no growth, uh, you know, flat to slight negative out of most of the OECD, US, Europe, uh, and, and North Asia. Uh, we have China slower than this year uh, in because of base effects growing about 600,000 barrels per day. 
uh, still robust India, and then some other non-OECD uh, seeing seeing some growth. Um, there's upside, and, and under that assumption, and then based off of the supply growth that we see from some non-OPEC producers, Guyana, Brazil, a little bit of US, uh, we actually think the call on OPEC uh, is pretty flat. So there's not a lot of room. I mean, so right now we're drawing inventories to Saudi is pushing through those unilateral cuts. They would have room to unwind some, but not all of those cuts. And there would not be room for other OPEC producers to increase production under that set of assumptions. So if we have kind of a deceleration in U.S. growth and a and a China that is sideways to maybe fractionally weaker, you know, high fours or five on a, on a GDP handle, then oil prices are kind of grinding sideways depending on OPEC policy. Sideways at in the kind of shelf where we are. We think we have room to go up into the 90s or if something else happens on the supply side, we could go higher. But broadly speaking, we think there's, there's you know, a higher floor. But uh, unless we're really looking for a, a global economics or demand acceleration, I don't think that there's enough uh, uh, oomph to, 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 to drive us uh, sustainably into, into, say, triple digits. Well, that's great. Daniel, I want to thank you very, very much for making the time today and taking us through, uh, uh, as I call it, the round the world tour on uh, macro oil and geopolitics and obviously what's what you're thinking on the U.S. and how it all comes together uh, from a cross-asset perspective. It's it's great perspective and uh, I know I took away a lot. Thank you very much for joining us on uh, the second episode of Get Sharp. Thanks, Daniel. I learned a lot, so I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks, Dustin. Thanks, Matt. Uh, pleasure to speak with you. Dustin, that was awesome to have Daniel on uh, get his take on oil prices around the world. I'm left with just his final comments about uh, where he's seen the oil price action going, which is modestly higher, but it doesn't seem like he's uh, extremely bullish nor bearish. What's your view on uh, on his take on oil prices, and what does it mean more broadly? Yeah, it was great to have him on. Uh, Daniel, I've known Daniel for well over a decade, and he's just uh, outstanding on, on so many levels and always has amazing takeaways. I, I learned a lot from that conversation, and uh, hopefully our, our listeners uh, found it interesting as well. I think, um, yeah, I, I generally agree with his view on on oil prices, where they're going, and how they've got here, frankly. I think the the, uh, the positioning story and the inventories uh those two stories really have been a big, big drivers over the last number of months, and why we're, you know, on on a global basis, on a Brent basis, so to speak, twenty percent off the bottom. I think oil can head higher, uh, a little bit higher. I, I agree. I think the China demand story is important uh, to that, and I thought that, you know, his view that the the market, or at least the the sentiment or the narrative, is wrong, and China oil demand is actually quite. quite a bit more constructive or more robust than maybe what's out there in the market was really interesting to me. So I'm wondering, I'm just kind of thinking in real time here, you always need that extra buyer, right? For any security, for any price. And so where, I mean, there's obviously a a whole world and other, other buyers, but you know, can, you know, will those extra buyers come from China to push oil and keep oil in the nineties or higher? If in fact the domestic situation is, is already a lot more constructive than maybe the, the current global narrative out there. So that's something I'm going to take away and think about. Yeah. He also, he also sort of referenced the manufacturing green shoots potentially in the U S as another uh, potential sort of incremental buyer. Love to hear your thoughts on that and, and then keep going on in the inflation side. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's true. I mean, we've seen manufacturing in the U.S. obviously on the on the, the low side of, of 50, which would uh, suggest a, a contractionary uh, you know, environment. And it hasn't really lined up with the national accounts data, the regular GDP data, which, you know, as he noted, you've got the Atlanta GDP, uh, you know, uh, for, now forecast um, running at 4%. And, uh, and it continues, you know, it's this recession that people have been expecting for the last three or four quarters, obviously, is not, you know, not, not materialized. I mean, I think from a central bank perspective, uh, you know, prices have clearly come lower. And my concern of the last few months is that we would see 
a move higher in oil prices for, for whatever reason. And there's a lot of reasons, obviously, to take away from this call, which could happen. Um, but if inflation if inflation comes higher, does it mean central banks are higher for longer? These rate cuts that are getting priced, not everywhere, but a lot of places here domestically in Canada and the US, obviously, in 2024, are those correct, either from a timing perspective and obviously from a size perspective uh, and how that and how that impacts? So, you know, I think one of the big takeaways for me is that um, if oil can kind of stay on this shelf, as he said, you know, if stay around this shelf for a while, maybe grind a little bit higher, but it's not, we're not talking 105, 110 spot, uh, or at least 100 plus for a significant period of time. Um, may, maybe there will be some room uh, for for central banks. That's obviously not not all about that, but but it is a, it is a big driver, and uh, and I think that the the inflation story, while clearly it's a lot more constructive than it was six months ago, we haven't necessarily seen the end. On, on the flip side of all this, I think one takeaway too would be if Daniel's correct, and I, I tend to agree with him, this idea of getting back to two percent in the next little bit is going to be challenging because oil is going to be hung up at a level that's going to be generally seen as expensive. And the year-over-year number will also be pushing higher. So not only do you have the annual percentage working against you, so to speak, but you also have the, the nominal level working against you. And I think that uh, you know this idea of inflation kind of hanging around 3% plus minus and you know, central banks are going to have to make a decision if they are going to really push it just to get to 2%, which at the end of the day is a number, but just a number. Uh, are they going to do that? And, uh, you know, if Daniel's correct, then I think that that has a very big implication for, you know, for policy, for global risk sentiment, obviously for equities, margins, uh, the shape of the fixed income curve, dollar, you know, all those things that, you know, we obviously take a, take a hard look at, um, all the time uh, from a cross asset perspective. So yeah, really fascinating uh, takeaway and, and discussion. So yeah, thanks very much for uh, for facilitating that with me. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the chat. Yeah, I, le- I learned a, a lot, Dustin. Um, and uh, yeah, let's call it there. Uh, I'll go and carry on with the rest of the activities today and be delighted that I'm not involved trying to negotiate an Israeli, Saudi, US treaty with all those uh, uh, warring factions uh, to try to piece together. My job seems a lot easier. So I appreciate that context. Sounds great. All right. Thanks again. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 